Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. I've long had a very romantic connection to the smell of straw and hay and fresh earth with crushed fern, essence of crushed fern behind it from lifting rocks. Lovely. And that kind of soupy, swampy <laughs> water smell that you get right on the banks of a pond as you're getting water burning. And smell is just fantastically important for me, and I can evoke memories just like that with a smell. You are listening to part two of Sir Tim Smith's Founder Story. We've heard how, in his words, serendipity took him from archaeology to the music industry, to restoring the lost gardens of Heligan in Cornwall. And now we'll hear Tim's thoughtful insights into the complex role of building a huge organisation about planning, negotiation, creating local wealth, managing teams and boards, money, customers and suppliers. And you'll end up being inspired by his new projects in the north of England and internationally. Enjoy listening. The Eden Project began as an idea, very simple. I had this idea that if you had a big dream to build a lost civilization in the crater of a volcano, I wanted to create a place that was so theatrical that even the biggest cynic in the world would just for a moment go, wow. You're asking about business plans. Yeah. It is ridiculous to spend £140 million on a project that turns over just under 30 million. It's ridiculous because you can't pay it. If I put it another way, you've got a place that's in pretty poor order, you build something marvellous, what then happens everywhere else? It's a completely different story. Eden is probably, and this sounds boastful, but I think it's true, pound for pound, the best investment of public money ever mm. in British history mm. because we've put back 2.1 billion into the local economy. And the Eden effect... If you add on to that the amount of people who subsequently had the confidence to invest in that part of the world, it's vastly more than that. Mm. All places need a sense that failure doesn't haunt that land. And lifting that pall is what cool projects do. That is why going for second best, buying what you can afford, cutting your coat according to your cloth, all of those great sentences are utter rubbish when it comes to regeneration. 
There are times you must borrow from the future because the end result will pay for itself. Mm. But you know you need to make that leap, and you see it with city centres all over Britain, where people say, "Oh well, we'll give you forty or a hundred million to redevelop your centre," and the government funds come in. They should have said, "No, we'll pay quarter of a quarter of a billion, and it'll be really good." Yeah. And then people will want to go there. I love all this. This is fantastic. Again, the, the scale, the risk, the big vision, and bring people with you, not just the people who are giving you the money, but also the constructors, the builders, the local people, the, the rest of it. How did you cope personally? You touched on it a little bit with this scale of it all and managing teams and managing the board and all that sort of stuff because we hear so many stories of social founders who just can't hack it in the end that they can't delegate or their team can't handle them or they can't manage the board or and in the end either the whole project falls apart mm. or the founder has to disappear and how, how did you cope with the changes over when, when was Eden set up? When what year? Well, we started work in 1997. We purchased the land October 1998. Began building October the 17th, 1998. It then rained for 134 days. Ooh, yeah, Cornwall. In, in 90, well, it was the worst in history. And then in February 1999, the hillside where the visitor centre was going to be collapsed into the bottom of the pit. We thought we were doomed, but this magnificent bunch of Irish guys came and they rebuilt the hillside in six weeks. Utter genius! How amazing! Yeah, no, it was exciting. So it's 20, 20 years, basically, more than twenty years, twenty-one years now that it's been going. Yeah. So that's a huge change. Yeah, well, for one, you of the, one of the issues, one of the questions you're bound to go and ask me is, do you suffer from founder syndrome, <laughs> where you're great for setting it that, up? I hate that phrase. The thing is that you start something and. Um, I am unusual because I dream in detail. Going to bed at night, I yeah. often dream about building things, making things, yeah. Yeah. and I get really excited about it. And so when your, I your castles that you talked about, yeah, but when I go into the field at my my farmhouse, I look at the rocks and I imagine. Just imagine, I got up every day and I just placed one rock next to another rock. How long would it take to build a building? Yeah. And I love that, the excitement of creation and the labour, the bother. See, you're excited about the process, which is quite interesting. I meet a lot of founders who are only thinking about the end game and the end vision. You're dreaming about the process as well as the end game. I'm dreaming about process because inside that process is the basis of a dream that other people will follow. Mm. Because it's it's like when we did uh, consultancy before we consulted... We had 20 village hall meetings before we built Eden. Mm-hmm. Most people go, they, they think consultancy means we'll tell people what we're doing. We actually went and listened to what people thought they wanted. Yeah. So when our next door neighbours who lived about 15 houses to our south, they said, is there any way that you could take the top off that slag heap, huh. uh, which is near us, because the wind funnels over there and we just can't do gardens? Done deal. Lovely. Yep, we'll do that. Yeah. And we did dozens of things and proved it. So this goes back to the early trust thing. When we came to um, public meeting number 17, I'll never forget the number, it was number 17, at Penwithick Village Hall. (laughs) On the morning of the evening's meeting, we had heard that Highways England were going to stand against our planning application because we needed a special access to get to our site because of the traffic. (laughs) And there was no land. It was doomed. We were doomed. And this old lady, we, I, so we went to this meeting and I just stood up and I told them about the problem. And this old lady 
was just utterly brilliant. She was in her 80s. She said, when I was a girl, that area, that site of special scientific interest over yonder, used to have a road underneath all of that, what you now see. And it was called the Burma Road. And it's got, it's got hard under there, and it, it goes for three miles. And if, if you built a road on that, it would save all of us in Penwithick from the heavy lorries going through the village. But it's a triple SI, which means you'll never get permission to put a road through it. But what happened next is brilliant, because the lady said, oh, don't you, don't you worry about that, she said. She said, tell them I told them. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did was, um, and I take no um, praise for it, but I wrote what turned out to be a brilliant letter to natural England. I mean, I think one of the things I'm proudest of in the history of Eden was that we managed to go from a situation of the project was doomed to opening up a finished three-mile-long road to the first vehicles 18 months later. I doubt there's an example like that anywhere else in Britain. Speed, again. Yeah, well... And speed, but also really getting under the skin of how everybody's thinking all around you. Yeah, they're really and smart that people. The time that you're taking, that you, you work really fast, but you take the time to listen to people from the 80 year olds to the people in the Nissan hut to the builders to the civil servants. Is that, that, is it, that's yeah. quite an unusual combination. Well, A, people hate people who are too smug and smart. Mm-hmm. B, I learn a lot listening to people. But you know what? About consultancy, uh, consultation, mm. I realized that one of the big things, and many of the charity people listening to, to us talk a, a really big piece of advice one of the things that's missing in the world is really really high quality horizon scanning for what is best anywhere else in the world so if you go to St. Austin and ask people what they want it would be that Henry Ford joke wouldn't it I want a faster horse or something yeah, like that. Yeah. but you go to St. Austin for example and you talk to people about what's happening in Salem in America or what's happening in Rio and you, you show them pictures of things they go wow Wow. Start the conversation by, would you like to see some examples of marvellousness? And then you start to build a desire for people to have that marvellousness. Then you say, well, how can we do that together? And did you do that with Eden? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what did you you use as your example? Well, we talked about, you know, building in in the crater of a volcano, but then we listened a lot to what people wanted, how they want, where they wanted the roads to go, how they wanted them to be advertised, blah, blah, blah. Later on, we we got we were on the verge of getting planning commission for a th- uh, permission for a three. It's rather exact, but I just happen to know a three point four megawatt wind turbine, and we had resistance from our neighbours. Who, you know, now I now know a lot about wind turbines, and every criticism that was made of it wasn't true. But there's a huge mythology about wind turbines. Mm-hmm. The truth, though, is that a whole bunch of people for whom the only major asset they have is a house, you are about to force on them something that they believe is going to devalue their house. Regardless of the fact that if I was building it out of their sight, they'd be really delighted to support it. So what do you do? I mean, the thing is, do you want to be right and have lots of enemies? Or do you actually say, okay, guys, we're going to pull out. We won't do it. Which is what we did. We pulled out. And subsequently, we... Uh, decided that we would go down a geothermal energy, deep geothermal energy route, but then all our neighbours supported us. Yeah, interesting, really um, interesting. So compromise as well. Compromise, as the famous C word. <laughs> I want to hear about 
what team you put in place and delegation. So how did you get around that thing of you, you're this visionary, very charismatic, very powerful leader, very strong-minded, very opinionated in all the best ways. Opinion, yeah. opinion. <laughs> no. How did you make that jump to managing? How many people, how many staff work at Eden? And how many volunteers? Just under 500. 500 paid staff, brilliant, yeah. loads of freelancers. How many volunteers have you got? Thousands, uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure about 120 or something. Yeah, so you started as chief exec. I started as chief exec, but I realised early on yeah. the ridiculousness of the organograms that manage most big businesses. They are mechanistic, like mm-hmm. the workings of clocks and um, industry conveyor belts. And this ridiculous thing with the chief executive with a straight line down to the weighing scales of justice where you have the marketing director, the sales director, the finance director, the media director, you know, the whole yeah. list of it. Did you try that to begin with? Mm, I, Did you, oh. I pretended to. <laughs> but then you have those grapes of people underneath those as well. It, it, it's actually like a child whistling to stop the crocodile under the bed biting their toes. It's there to make everybody think that you're in control. Yeah. So what did you do? What did you put in place? Um, well, the reason Eden got built was because I believe in hunting in packs. I believe in wolf packs. It's utterly crazy, this childish thing. The chief executive will go off to China and talk to somebody, then will come back and brief the team, and then if they like what he's briefed or she's briefed, they will then go back and send it to more people out there. And I say, sod it, let's all go. And we all go. And then you see the whites of people's eyes, and you sit there and you make the decision there and then. It's amazing. And it's a people, team decision. Then. People don't understand the dynamic of doing. The dynamic of doing is about, I do appreciate there are other sectors in which a more cautious approach may be appropriate. I do accept that. I think, though, that an awful lot of people are anxious of the perception of risk and they're anxious because they've never taken risks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they don't realise that the decision to take the risk has immediately removed half of what they were having as a risk, which was anticipation of failure. And fear. You now started, fear. Yeah. So now all of that's gone because you're doing it. Yeah. And that, that's my life experience is do it, you know. Um, and at the risk of sounding pretentious, I, I, I'm, I'm radical in the way that I believe gangs should operate. I'm a socially radical in as much as I don't treat myself... I don't behave like the boss. I, t- I treat my senior colleagues as being equal. Now, I know that in reality, um, while we are equal in, 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 in the traditional sense, they will know that I am the boss, therefore certain behaviours will be tainted. But you've got to learn the most valuable lesson of all, which is if you are the boss, be aware that every single other person can be fired by you, therefore will be anxious to please you. Yeah. Therefore, the way of dealing with it is that whenever you're together consistently given the message how can we improve on this so they don't think that you have all the answers mm-hmm. it's the biggest lesson of yes. all I, I was taught that by a friend who who had, was working with one of Britain's biggest companies and every time he had a workshop it became like osmotic policy everybody was listening to what the boss thought he wanted as an idea but he was just like wanting to be one of the team you know and I think you'll be really careful with that but I think also the people around you need to know that you are kind that you are generous yep. that um, uh, one of the things I'm passionate about is that you're well read. You know. And what do you mean by that? By well, so you, many you, people. You started reading the Times when you were eight. Yeah, but, cover to cover. But what so many people well are read? so effing lazy. Mm. They 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 think they're intelligent, but actually they're not very intelligent. 
you may have gone to school and gone to university and then you think that it's intelligent to be able to quote at a dinner table the editorial from some economist article or whatever that you hope that the people at the table haven't heard so you look smart. Real thinking is exhausting. So when you say well-read, you mean wide horizons or do you mean reading the board papers properly? (laughs) I I expect people to read the board papers properly. Um, Again, if you really want to annoy me, invite me to a board or a meeting where someone then goes point by point through what I was sent, I will walk out of those. Mm. I don't actually really like meetings anyway because I feel that um, one of the great problems in society is that we aren't brave enough to say that we're clever. And if you don't say that you're clever, it means that every time someone wants to make a decision, let's have a meeting about it, and it would take... The length of the meeting will be in inverse proportion to the scale of risk associated with that decision or the scale of, uh, scale of cost. Yeah as opposed to, I can make a decision in five minutes about most of those things. So tell me about your board then. How did you work with the board? You you talked about bringing in key people. The board was less important. This is not to denigrate the board, because Mm. the board is now very important. The board was important, but in a governance sense that everybody could see someone was looking out for the the organisation and the minuting of things and making sure the finances were being looked at. But by far, the critical things are to know what your weaknesses are. I'm talking about... When you're going to have an adventure and you want to be successful, make sure that the things that are necessary for an adventure to be successful are in place. So many people and so many chief executives I know do not understand stuff and they think they're saving money by not employing somebody to do it. You know, if you're not good with money, stop wasting the world's time pretending to be. Find someone who's really good. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are an articulate leader, when you go and see a bank... They get excited. You're articulate. It's fantastic. But they're still not going to lend you any money. But when the person next to you stands up and says, not only is this exciting, but here's the, here is the cash flow. This is how we're going to pay for it. They get, you can see them just, oh, thank God for that. There are two key things if you want to start an adventure. Yeah. The first is a great finance person alongside you. Yeah. Great finance person. I assumed that I could talk the hind legs of a donkey and I could paint a vision of a lost world that everybody would want to come to and when I talked I could see that people believed me because Heligan had been successful although this idea was bonkers I kind of now had license to be bonkers but in order for it to go real they needed to know I knew that in their heads they'd be saying yeah but this is about 20 times bigger than your Heligan so they needed to know that I knew that it was 20 times bigger than Heligan so the dream remained a dream but they then met the finance director who was Gay Cody at the time And we also got a really good project director because someone who's a bit of a free spirit is hugely disrespectful of um, a pattern of weekly meetings at a certain time. But actually when you're building something, it's utter chaos if you don't have that discipline. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about dreaming about process as well. Yeah, yeah. You you understand enough about needing the process to be able to get the right person in place who's going to help you. Yeah, and Gay said to me something really good, which is, is you've got to, for a project to be successful, you've got to dare to dream and organise to deliver. Lovely, that's great. And I think, I think it's utterly crucial. I mean, Eden got built because we had really, really good people. My job was to get people excited and to never use the word if. <laughs> that is the big lesson I always give people I mentor. Never use the word if. This is, and the other um, thing is don't use the word but. This is so full of quotes, Tim. I feel like uh, we'll have to have, write down this word for word, definitely. It's amazing. I, I want to go back to the board, though, because oh, yeah. one of the reasons why I set up the network for social founders is because of the 
really sad mess that Camilla Batmangelid and her board got into with Kids Company. Yeah. So there's been a lot of debate out there about what are, what are boards for in charities and social enterprises in particular, but also, you know, Enron and everywhere else as well. What did you use your board for and how did that change as the organisation got bigger? And you said it's different now out of interest. Cause y- uh, yes, because early on it was essential that we had the good governance so that the funders felt that the people that were overall in governance responsibility for the project yeah. were of a quality. Yeah. And you you chose that board, did you? Did you put them in place? Did you know um, the right people to? Did I? Because I th- you know, well, to be honest, when you start out, you, you, you ask a couple of people to come and help you. Yeah. And then they will select a few other people. And then so our, our, board, our, our board became really serious after we got a chairman of trustees uh, in Sir Ronnie Hampel, who'd been the boss of ICI. And he'd written, of course, the Hampel report on good governance. Fantastic vote of confidence. He, he then yeah. had to deliver. Well, he had to yeah. go to see Chris Smith, the minister, to see whether reverse nepotism was allowed because, yeah. because Ronnie's son, Peter, was working for me as creative director. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, Ronnie became chairman, and the brief that we hammered out between us was that he should ask people to join the board who weren't looking for a knighthood and weren't past their sell-by date. People who actually were going to be engaged, and mm-hmm. he chose some really, really good people. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, having said everything I said right at the start of this conversation about class and all that, there are times when having people who are establishment and are really successful... Mm-hmm that have made a vote of confidence to be on your board says something about the solidity of your ability to make friends and allies, I guess. And and also, Ronnie was very helpful in terms of helping us get our actual board together. We were very lucky, too, that a guy who'd been effectively the boss of Southwest Water, Pennon Group, he'd been group finance director, a guy called Ken Hill, agreed to become the non-exec chairman of the board. So we've got a trust, yes, and we have an operating board. Yeah, yeah? yeah. two things. Because we wanted to have an operating board that could behave in an entrepreneurial way, mm. but the two shares in that company belonged to the trust. Mm-hmm. So any profits or surpluses would be viaed up so to the trust. Equivalent of a trading company, would you call it? Yeah. yeah. The difference being, and I think we are unique in this and we remain unique, is that the substance of that which the trust is protecting i.e. that, like the Natural History Museum or whatever, is being created by those who are on the board. So I've remained on the board and I've never become a trustee. Mm. Um, and, so, and we develop the journey, the direction of travel, mm. but we have marvellous trustees. And so effectively what happens is we, we set the controls, if you like, of where we're going, and then we have these marvellous trustees who... Obviously, we, we have a conversation about whether they agree that's the right direction. So it's, it's, it's never d- uh, dictatorial. But once it's agreed, we've, we've, we've started to come to a realisation that most boards and trusts are rubbish, that you hire people to become like policemen to a business structure that no longer exists in Britain. Most companies are too big to have non-executive directors that turn up for a board meeting. I, I, we still do it all over the place, but mm. if you were to ask Ronnie Ample, mm. he thinks that, 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 that actually the world has become far too sophisticated when you work out that some of the really big companies that went bankrupt um, you know, he did a survey in America where I think each of the boards he looked at had 17 people on it but only two people could read a balance sheet yeah, yeah. there's a whole load of fibs going on about yeah. the quality of people what would you have done if you were on the board of Kids Company five, say five years before it went up 
down the Swanee, up the junction, <laughs> whatever. I'm not sure I feel able to... I, I, I don't feel sufficiently qualified to, to comment about what actually happened. No, I don't think it's even been sorted yet. No, Nobody's well, quite sure. I think, I think, I think risk-taking or justifying what you do because you feel that the end justifies the means and the means is that you're saving kids from something... I can see how one can get into a pickle if you're facing the real clear and present dangers that youngsters are facing and yeah, we'll sort the money later. Yeah, we'll do that. Mm. Uh, I'm very sympathetic at a certain level. I think it's bloody easy to come at it with a perspective of they should have done this, they should have done that, yeah, and I don't know I what the detail was. Yeah. Um, what I would say would be if, if it was a, a bugger's muddle because it was organisationally pickle then yeah there are some criticisms that need to be put to the chair and the chief executive of course there are if there was corrupt practice as in self-aggrandisement through um, the desire of others to support it that's a different thing altogether mm -hmm. I mean I can, I can put up with a bugger's muddle any day of the week and in many ways I wish things like the charity commission or big companies like the one we're in here EY I had a division that could help people before it went past the point of no return. Because I think there are certain things where, with very quick steps, you can put certain things right. Mm -hmm. And ironically, when the things go absolutely wrongest, when panic is allowed to set in, and then people make decisions which are based on panic, and then so much value goes. I mean, if you look at Kids Company, again, I don't know, but there was a brand good thing there. Yep, there was absolutely. a charismatic leader. Who was a very brave leader as well. Yeah. And stood up to power and challenged the yeah. civil servants at one stage and I, uniquely. I, yeah. I, I hate to say it because I don't actually know whether this is true. I'll say it anyway. My impression from a distance was that if Camilla had been white, I think the response would not have been quite as it was, I got a very strong sense of a probably almost unthinking presumption that she wouldn't have been as good as someone else might have been without actually realising that the kind of charisma she had was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's a real shame that she's probably bruised to the point where she's not operating anymore in that sphere. Yeah. And she feels that somehow she's got something to be ashamed of as opposed to think of all the kids whose lives have been changed already yeah. and get that woman back into something cool as quickly as possible. Yeah. And were there any key moments in your journey with Eden in particular where the risk was so huge and where you, as the founder, intervened to make sure you were going in the right direction, that the ship wasn't going to hit the fan? Were there any times when you did intervene to stop things going horribly wrong and you know you were able to turn things around when potentially it could have collapsed like the the land collapsed that time well i suppose if i was looking for moments there could be moments i think though it, your question brings back the notion that in our culture society we have this view of the chief executive being some kind of hero figure. Mm -hmm. um, and I deny that. I think my, my role 
has always been to be excited when I need to be excited. You know, I, I can be a bit like a kind of bonkers Magnus Pike character with my arms waving about and my <laughs> hair looking like a nutty professor. I like the image of you being Merlin with the wand, actually. Ah, well, I'd love that too. I'd love <laughs> that too. Uh, but the truth is that we had a really good team. We talked... Um, I say had. We have a really good team. Um, uh, we talked a lot about things. One of the greatest problems is success because success breeds with it the fear of losing that success and the very thing that made you successful was that you were fearless so ironically you're building in lead boots um, we had a particularly awkward time in the year 2012 mm -hmm. where we had to lay off um, about 100 people it was really awkward but that's a lot of people yeah, and a, especially little, uh, when, yeah. you, when your story was very much about employing local people. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was. And I could sit here and tell you the reasons were mm. every single Wednesday, which is our busiest day throughout the summer, was red hot, which meant that people went to the beach. That is actually a fact. That's a fact. There's so much Cornwall, the weather, you've talked about the yeah. rain, uh, now, that, now it's the hot weather. Britain, and, Britain, yeah was doing particularly well at the Olympics and rightly most people were glued through that hot summer to their televisions that's also a fact if you're being defensive you then wheel out those two facts as being the reason you had a really bad year and mm -hmm. had to deal with things mm -hmm. the more nuanced fact is that we had from about in 2010 we'd had a really bad flood and we moved heaven and earth to restore the the place in a week because all our neighbours said God if you are closed it's going to kill our Christmas this yeah. was the end of so we actually worked around the clock so literally great. moving earth in your case oh, well yeah <laughs> I mean, it was terrible I mean our the sewage overflowed and went everywhere our I, restaurant yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but we did it all in a week yeah. working 24-7 yeah. it was as if the excitement of that affected us and our maybe we were tired but we didn't go for our shots and we were rather ordinary in 2011 and what we did in 2012. Now, 2013, we had to make we made a decision that we were going to gamble in a way that we would go bust. We decided to put on. We we're going to spend more money than we had. Yep. Um, putting on dinosaurs and science exhibition. And it was amazing, going for our shots like that. Our colleagues all realised it had to be successful. So everybody became a marketer. And it was a really good exhibition. So it really yeah. energised yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, so we had 150,000 extra people came that year, visitors. We were so pleased with that that we went for our shots the following year, same amount up again. Again, a really big risk. Yeah. Another 150 on top of that 150, so we're 300,000 up. Yeah. So today, now, we are uh, tracking at about 1.1 million visitors a year again. It's an amazing So, so we've won ourselves back yeah. to where we were. Through risk. Yeah. And but and it's really interesting, that whole thing about risk is, it can be so damaging. Yeah. And I'd done it once before in my life. I mean, the, the biggest mistake I, I probably made professionally was when I was successful in the music industry, I, I, I became the most unpleasant, arrogant son of a gun you've ever met. No, we blew so much money on being arrogant. But and so, so when that could have happened with Eden, did you, did you listen to other people's advice? What no. Was, what was, I didn't listen to anybody. I realised the problem was I'd listened to too many. 
I, I was wondering about that actually. I um, think that that thing of advice is really can be really dangerous. It can you can be. end up spending too much time listening to conflicting advice often as well. Yeah. In the end, you just have to fall back on your own b- yeah. bravery and decision. Yes, but you can also make some pretty dumb moves, and I did. You, With Eden still. Yeah, yeah, because you do too many things. You're doing too many things, uh-huh. so you're not giving your full attention to each of them, but you're spending out on all of them as they go, yeah. as opposed to maybe having fewer and rationalising that. Um, and is that what happened then with Eden? Sort of, sort of. The outputs that we got for some of the expenditure we made wasn't as great as we would like to have done. Mm. But we put all that right. I mean, we, you need sometimes to make mistakes in order to go for you. Christ, that was a close shave, you yeah. know. Yeah, and carry people with you. Yeah. And, and when there's the, the element of the risk, the potential of making mistakes, you try to be very open with your board and with your team. That, again, that thing of, do you, do you worry everybody else or do you keep the worries to yourself and, and the thing about them in the middle of the night? How do you get that balance well, right? Well, I think it's really difficult when you replace yourself. So, for example, uh, I am executive vice chairman of the Eden Project, but we have a chief executive and... I'm executive chairman of Eden International, which is what I do the most of. And one of the, one of the really difficult things is if you don't call it arrogance and call it self-confidence, one of the most frustrating things is seeing people doing what is in their comfort zone, but you know it's not good enough. <laughs> and one of the really th- difficult. And one of the things that I often say about Eden is don't believe your own press. I said, if you are in an industry where everybody is in the third division, unaware of what the Champions League is in football, mm. but they judge themselves by the other teams in the third division, that is really dangerous. It is really dangerous. So Eden is very highly relate- rated. Mm. Journalists are very kind. Educationists are really kind. Do you know what the truth is? We're quite good. Mm. Everybody else is just rubbish. Mm. And the problem is people do not sit down and ask themselves, what would great look like? Mm. Does great actually mean that you go to a museum and you're really pleased that one curator has impressed another curator with the factual accuracy of what they've put on the interpretation boards? Or is success that kids go there and they go, wow, I want to study this, I want to learn this, it's, it, it's, it's, mm. it's going to guide my future. So getting the balance right between the external story and the reality of what's going on is absolutely key, presumably, because yes, that can come and, and back got, to, to bite you, you otherwise. Yes, and you've got to, to kick your own tyres. Kick them. Mm. So what does it feel like now not to be running it day-to-day, to be doing the international stuff, to almost be starting again? Yes. Can you tell us and, about some and, of the and new running stuff? running those day-to-day. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we are, we're doing four big projects in Britain. Mm-hmm. We've got three wild projects, which are projects that are not for the public. Did you say wild? Wild, yes. We, wild. We, we've got one in Costa Rica where we've become partners in a 10,000-acre rainforest, uh-huh. which is brilliant because 30-odd years ago it was 42 farms where the land was so degraded nothing grew. And in that time it's been left for the birds to shit on it and now it's a brilliant rainforest. Yeah. And whereas there was five months a year of drought, there's now four rivers running 365 days a year. Amazing. It's wonderful. It's just marvelous. And it shows the power of nature. Yeah. Um, the uh, 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 island of Aldabra in the Indian Ocean. We're doing a marine Eden with the Seychellois government, um, and it's an island bigger than the Isle of Wight. It, no one has fished there since 1963. 
and it's like going to heaven. It's better than the Galapagos. In that, uh, to dive on a reef where it is so dense with fish, you think it's art. That's how they should be. But you've got the big, you know, the bull sharks, the tiger sharks. Then you've got the sailfish, the kingfish, the 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 the, 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 the jacks. The Tim, this is your adventure. This is yeah. again continuing. Yeah, the adventure decade continues. after decade, the adventure continues. Yeah. Yeah. So you're having great fun. I am having great fun, and, and I'm learning all the time. I mean, the big, the biggest, the most important projects we're working on are actually, I think, in England. But we're doing three projects in China, and that's really interesting. We're doing a very big one in Qingdao, which is the marine uh, headquarters of China yeah. um, between Beijing and Shanghai, and that's also going to be a water-based Eden. It's big. It's it's in a location which is a bit like Sydney Opera House is for um, for Sydney. Uh, on the middle of a horseshoe and that's been great and learning the culture in China has been great again great it's about trust yeah. we got so much adv- advice from the great and the good yeah. and we have an interpreter who we adore who's American who was brought up there he said you either listen to the great and the good who know sweet Fanny Adam or you listen to me <laughs> go over there drink drink some more drink some more <laughs> eat tell jokes come back invite them into your house eat a lot, drink a lot, tell jokes, go back and now start negotiating. And be aware that when you're dealing with Chinese business people, when they ask you questions, they usually know the answer. They just want to find out whether you're telling the truth. So it comes back to the old themes of yeah. trust. As well. But it is all about trust. Trust, personal connections, networking. And are you doing the international stuff completely separately? In the same, you know, you subsidised the first Eden project with Heligan money. Are you using the Cornish Eden project to subsidise the international stuff? Or are you keeping uh, we it did start completely with, separate? We did, well, we did start with, but actually what we're very keen on is to see uh, the international as an adjunct of what we're doing at Eden itself. because. Yeah. Eden, home, home turf Eden has always got to be marvellous and we want it to be the shop window for every other Eden that yeah. we do and to make these links so we're, we're, we work quite hard to not make a, a sort of us and them culture between the two Edens mm. uh, and that's why I'm on both boards um, mm. for that reason and the trustees are, are equally concerned also there's another aspect which is colleagues at Eden will be pretty pretty brassed off if Eden International does all these exciting things and it isn't part of them yeah so you can involve them in it and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we do and we love it I mean we've got a great project um, that we're working on in the north in Morecambe uh, which is again a marine but, I mean they love it I mean we we did some designs for them and they went bonkers yeah. so we want that yeah. and we're doing um, another project on Portland in Dorset which is possibly going to be the most famous project we do so you're, you're very much you've gone right back to the startup culture again mm. which is great really but using all the expertise but start up with built. the wisdom of having yeah. started up before yeah, exactly and handing over i think what happens if you is if you're a startup merchant but you understand steady state you want to keep the culture of startup but know what to adapt for solid for steady state mm. yeah um and that's what we're doing with all of these projects so that when we We've worked out how to do the drawings, how to sell the story, how to work out the economic benefit for the whole area. You've got to start creating pictures for people that this could be good for you, hotel owner, this could be good for bed and breakfast, great for you, Bournemouth University, great for you because we'd be doing blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And you've got to... <clears throat> we, we have this word, commonwealth. We rather like commonwealth. 
we see two words though were you using for, it for as us, one word? For us, it's two words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we, we, we do it because actually people don't spend enough time imagining if we did this right, how much bigger could we make it? How many more people could get benefit from this? And then if more people get involved, how, many, how could they... So, for example, if we insist on local sourcing and we're absolutely draconian about how that's done and the standards of supply, can we then make the hotels that we put people in do the same? And can they then the suppliers of the hotels do the same? Because then you embed wealth where you are as opposed to hemorrhaging. Mm. And all of this comes back to the first days of the Eden Project when I was so, so lucky. I went, I wanted to learn how people did big, never having done big. And I phoned up the civil servant who'd been in charge of doing the um, Ebu Vale Garden Festival. And he said he'd see me. And I went up and I was there for two days. And he was such a nice man and he just told me all the mistakes they'd made and they were mistakes that I would have made had he not been so honest and told me everything they'd done wrong things that would never have occurred to me about if you want to make wealth come to a locality you've got to plan your needs way back so other people can tool up to be ready for when you need it so like at, at, at Ebu Vale all the stuff in the shop was imported from outside Wales all the uniforms outside Wales because everybody thought that Wales was full of big businesses because the word steel and the word coal were big. They'd forgotten that these industries had shrunk and all the people who then set up new businesses were two men and a dog or two women and a dog and they needed help. Tim, there's so much. We could talk for hours and listen to everything you're saying. Um, um, I wondered, what's your latest book or what you know, have you distilled all this amazing information that you've no I, I haven't distilled this information and there's a reason I think that people who run things who then write books about my success they're destined to be struck by lightning always oh. struck by lightning um, and also I'm not sure you can ever write an honest book like that mm. because luck good fortune the gift of friendship with lots of other people they're all, it's a it's a heady heady old brew yeah. and we're incredibly lucky to have you talking like this. If some young person, you, a few years ago, came up to you and said, I've got this vision, I want to make something happen, would you encourage them to, do, to create an organisation that has social impact and is financially sustainable, a social enterprise, a charity, something that is there to do, what I would do both? Yeah, well, what I'd do now is I'd say to somebody, and I said this to the Arts Council about five years ago when they asked me, for advice about how they should go about grant funding. I said, on the front page it should say, I'm telling you, a week after the greatest success we had, this is what it feels like and what we did. Tell it forward. And I would say to people, are other people doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Come to me when you've learnt the lessons that the other people have had that you think you can improve on, and then I will help you. Fantastic. Well, on that note, those are some pretty good bits of advice, uh, a Bible of advice uh, that we've had from you, Tim. I can't thank you enough for all the time and the words of wisdom and the inspiration and the fun. I'm always going to remember your story about Merlin and the one and Rapunzel, social jeopardy. There's been so much. The eagle flying overhead, looking looking down. So many images. You know there you are, are only four important words. You do know that. Come on, tell us. The great way to end. Once upon Lovely. And it just makes me think that your parents or somebody in your life must have been amazing because I just have this vision all the way through of thinking of you as a child. 
you must have read all these stories, you must have immersed yourself in, in myth as well as in the, the gardens and the straw and the, the smell of the damp pond and everything else. So thank you so much, Tim, and we look forward to engaging with you lots more. My pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website, socialfounder.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Social Founders. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a great five-star review. This will really help spread the word. And of course, if you are a social founder or even thinking of becoming one, let me know. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at kiva.org.uk. Thank you.